0: We're all there together. You may be seated. Good morning. Can you hear me? Hey, cool. My voice reverberates the hills. It's always fun when you've got a new microphone because we don't know when it's going to like attack us. Well, uh, if you haven't already guessed by the scripture verses that was read for us and uh, this morning's songs. Today we're talking about the doctrine of eternity. And so uh, this is actually a sad day for me. This is our last doctrine for me to preach through. We've made it to the end of our series. Which means next week we're starting a new sermon series on Jonah. So it'll be fun. But like I do every time that I want to recite to you our doctrines, uh, I've got them uh, up on the screen. Uh, Doctrine 11 is the doctrine of eternity, and so we're going to uh, read it together in this, say that we believe in the immortality of the soul, in the resurrection of the body, in the general judgment at the end of the world, in the eternal happiness of the righteous, and in the endless punishment of the wicked. And I just have to say... Uh, As a man who loves doctrine, uh, I like the fact that it ends with the punishment of the wicked. Uh, It has a sense of uh, theater about it. You know, you want to end with like something that will grab your attention. And so like we do in every single doctrine, we're going to move through these in sort of a certain order. We're going to talk about the immortality of the soul. Then we're going to talk about the happiness of the righteous. And we're going to end with the punishment of the wicked and then sort of round out our time together and so if you have your bibles we're going to be uh, in the book of revelation Uh, we're also going to be in other scriptures but that's going to be our key verse for today that was read for you earlier Uh, and so we're going to begin with the immortality of the soul and this is what you need to know is the concept of the afterlife the concept of eternity is not uh, in christianity alone it is not exclusive to christianity in fact uh, every major world religion throughout all of time has had some sort of concept of immort- the immortality of the soul. In fact, going all the way back to places like uh, Egypt, uh, Samaria, Ur, all of the uh, Canaanite religions and the Greeks and the Romans, they all had some form of concept of the afterlife. In fact, in the ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian religion, uh, the god Osiris was the one that would weigh the, uh, the living and the dead, when the, the dead came to them, he would weigh their soul against what they had did, and if, it was, if they had lived a good life, they would go off to uh, their uh, version of heaven, and if they didn't, they would go off to their version of hell. And so the god Osiris really uh, uh, decided whether or not you were a good person, and so this concept of the immortality of the soul is not new or something that uh, really is, has been invented with Christianity. Um, And I I only want to spend a really short time on this because I think all of us together have a concept that there is something more than the physical reality in which we live. Uh, Everyone has the concept uh, that there is something more than just uh, the world around us. Uh, In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher says it this way, that God has placed eternity into or onto the hearts of man. And and what that really means for us is that each one of us from a very young age are born with or have this concept that you and I are not just physical beings. We're not just a meat suit that will one day expire. We are, in fact, eternal creatures. And if you were to take the length and breadth of eternity and measure it up against the length and breadth of your physical life, you would find out that eternity vastly outweighs your tiny little moment in the sun here. In fact, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, we've talked about him before, but C.S. Lewis said this, uh, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And so the way that this has been articulated through Christianity is quite simple, that God created your soul and then encased it in a temporal body, but that body will not last, but your soul will. Will And so for us Christians, what we need to understand is what will happen to our soul when we die. Uh, I don't think it's news to you that your life has an expiration date on it. We don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how. But eventually, every single person in this room, no matter how young, no matter how old, will pass into the next life. And so what happens at that moment is what we're going to talk about today. Are you with me so far? Fantastic! I love it when you're with me. So we're going to talk now very briefly about the eternal happiness of the righteous, because you always start with the fun one and end with the bad one. So eternal happiness of the righteous and what this really means for us. What do you think or what do you know or think you know about heaven? This is very interesting for me when I talk to Christians, uh, when I ask them, what is, when, when you... Picture heaven, because let's be honest, we all have a picture in our mind's eye of what heaven's going to look like. Uh, even though you know, a description was read for us just earlier, what do you imagine heaven to look like? Um, what do you what do you think you know about heaven? Um, fluffy white clouds? There's TV. There's TV in heaven, apparently. What's the next? Put up the next slide. I've got a, a couple of things that are uh, sort of. Predominant in our thinking of heaven, shall we say. So uh, uh, do you think about fluffy white clouds and fat little babies flying around playing harps? Yes? No, no, uh, let's be honest. A lot of people have this idea of of, of little cherubs with halos and playing cards flying around, flapping around. Um, uh, are you going to get your own personal mansion? Uh, there's a comedian that I know that uh, sings a song called Is There a Home Depot in Heaven? Uh, and what he, what he says in that particular song, I can't remember his name, I'll remember at the end of the service, but uh, what he asks in that song is, if, if eternity is going to last for a while, what if I want to make some additions to my mansion? What if it's like not perfect for me, but maybe I want to, to remodel a little bit? So he, he asks if there's a Home Depot in Heavens, and if there's not, can there at least be a Lowe's? Um, in his song, Tim Hawkins is the name of the comedian. Got it, I remembered. Uh, Do you get your own personal mansion hey you skipped to the wrong side don't don't spoil my sermon do you get a crown here's another a, a fun one do you get a crown in heaven i remember growing up in the pentecostal church my father was fond of saying every time that you led someone to christ you would get another jewel in your crown I'm not sure how many of you have heard that expression, if it was exclusive to, uh, to my stream of faith growing up, uh, but that's something that, again, that comes from the Bible. And so today, when we talk about the eternal happiness of the righteous, we're going to, to puncture and deflate a few of these holes, uh, and I'm going to leave you feeling a little down, but then don't worry, I'll pick you up at the end. So, next slide uh, talks about flying babies. I hate to break it to you, nowhere in scriptures does they say there's going to be little flying babies in heaven. I think it might be cool if there was, but it's not biblical. A misconception, believe it or not, came from the Renaissance and the Middle Ages. Uh, And it's quite disturbing. There was a plague going around, killing lots of babies. So people were upset about the death of these infants. And so the church came up with this plan, is as soon as an infant dies, we'll say they became an angel. And so that's why whenever you see pictures of the Renaissance, you'll always see cherubs floating above in the clouds because it was to comfort grieving mothers that their children were going to be met again in heaven. I know I told you it's sad, but that's where the concept comes from. It's not a biblical thing. How about your own personal mansion? That's my next slide. You're going to get your own personal mansion in heaven. Well, fortunately, this comes from a mistranslation of the King James. Uh, I've got the next, uh, the next slide. is a Bible verse. It's John 14. Uh, verse 2, where Jesus is talking and he says this, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If you were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. In this translation, which is the ESV, it says rooms. In the original King James, uh, the word room is translated mansion. And so, in, in the King James, which is a lot of people memorized early on, it will say that in my Father's house there are many mansions. But the actual word here in the Greek that Jesus says is more accurately translated as rooms. And it actually comes from an interesting uh, bit of Jewish context. In uh, the Jewish society, in Jewish culture, uh, when you were to marry someone, you would actually go to the wife, the the husband would go to the wife's uh, father and live in his house and actually build onto his house. And so, the bridegroom would go to the bride's house, build a section onto the father-in-law's house, and that's where he would live until the wedding, and then after the wedding, they would move in together with his bride. And so, what Jesus, in the, in the greater part of this story, is saying to us is that he is the bridegroom, we the church are his bride, he's going to the father's house, and he's making room for us in that house. It's not about individual mansions. I'm sorry, that would be nice, but it's not about that either. Uh, It is about the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to take us to his Father's house. He's going to take us to heaven, and he is making sure that there is room for all of those that believe there. And that's just as good. I know in our materialistic society, having your own mansion in heaven sounds like a fantastic idea, but the reality of what Jesus is saying is better for us than what the misinterpretation of Jesus saying is. It's better than you getting your own personal mansion, that the God of the universe is making room in heaven for those that love him. That's an amen. If only one of you said amen, that's ridiculous. Some of you aren't paying attention or as excited as I am. I know that it's hot and on a Sunday morning, but come on, guys, get with me here. This is fun stuff. How about the crown? You're going to get your own crown with... now. Here's what I will say about the crown. It's not as bad as everything else. There's about four different occasions in Scripture, specifically uh, in some of the prophetic books, uh, that will say something about you getting a crown of some sort in heaven. Uh, The problem is is that the word crown in most of those actually either means a laurel wreath or it means a badge of honor. So maybe not a literal crown, but an actual badge that you would place on your chest, much like if you are in the military and you did something good, you would receive... Uh, an award for that particular behavior. If you sacrifice something, you would get a, a, a recognition of that sacrifice. And so here in Scripture, the word crown can literally be translated as a badge of honor. And so when you lead a soul to Christ, it doesn't say that you're going to necessarily get a big, beefy crown, like English royalty, maybe, like the Queen Elizabeth has. But maybe, just maybe, there will be some sort of system that will say, this person did what I asked them to do. Because that's the ultimate thing. That Christ, after he saves us, puts us on a path to do his will in this world. And that will often is that we would lead other people to Christ. And I don't think there's going to be any reward equal to the understanding and knowledge that someone will go to heaven because I was obedient to Christ. I don't think there should be anything greater in our lives than that understanding that people will be in heaven because I was obedient. And when we get to our next section, which is coming up right here, uh, when we talk about hell, you'll understand why that's the greatest thing. So, the endless punishment of the wicked. I know this is the one that you've all been waiting for. I know you've been sitting here uh, with anticipation for however many weeks we've been studying the doctrines of the Salvation Army. You've been waiting for this one because this is your favorite. This is the one that you want to know the most about. Uh, I know I did. So let's go with this. The endless punishment of the wicked. The word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. It'll be up there in a uh, second, it's actually spelt sort of Gina, but it's pronounced Gehenna. Uh, it occurs almost exclusively, in fact, it, it does occur exclusively in the New Testament because it's a Greek word. Its literal translation is the Valley of Hinnom. That's what the word Gehenna means. So rather than, than hell, it actually means the Valley of Hinnom. And so we'll just stay on this slide for a, a, a little bit because I want to explain what this means. In the Old Testament, the word hell doesn't appear, but the phrase Valley of Hinnom does. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, sorry, in the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew understanding of hell was not the same as we had. They believed in a place called Sheol, which is often translated the pit or the earth. And what they believed is that God was going to judge everyone, and anyone that lived their life in unrighteousness during their lives would actually spend a waiting period in the pit until God's time of judgment. But then after that, something else was going to happen that they didn't know yet. And so for them, this uh, concept of the pit uh, or Sheol was a waiting place until judgment. Likewise, their concept of heaven was not the same as ours. Their concept of heaven was called uh, Abraham's bosom or paradise. And that concept was, again, if you lived a righteous life during your life, that you would die, you would go to this waiting place until judgment. You weren't actually allowed into heaven until the final judgment. And so you had two waiting places. Uh, Interestingly enough, this is where the concept of uh, Dante's Inferno came from. Some of you who are uh, uh, literature nerds a little bit like me may have heard that uh, there's this guy called Dante. He wrote a book called The Divine Comedy. Anyone? Just Okay, I got a couple of nods. That's good. That means that's all I need is one nod and I'll keep going. Uh, Dante really shaped the common sort of idea that we have in our minds of hell. Uh, It wasn't based on scriptural, it was based on his own sort of English, uh, not English, but uh, sort of literacy. Uh, experience, he wanted to create a good word picture for us. Uh, it wasn 't based anywhere in scripture, however, that uh, dante 's description of hell sort of has now translated into our modern sensibilities and that 's what we think hell is. For instance, many people still think that there are levels or circles of hell that you know if you were just whatever you 'd be on the top level in limbo, and if you were really, 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 really bad, you 'd get to the bottom level of hell. The, the problem is is that is nowhere in scripture but it still has really shaped the modern understanding of hell. Uh, and, and what we need to understand when we talk about hell, what we need to get into our minds is this concept here, the Valley of Hinnom, and, and I'm going to tell you why. The Valley of Hinnom, I told you, is found in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Chronicles. The Valley of Hinnom is where the Israelites, when they were influenced by the foreign cultures around them, built idols to the gods of the cultures of the Canaanites. This is the valley where they built the altars to Baal. This is the valley where they literally lit sacrificial fires and sacrificed people alive. And it's found in the Old Testament. So when Jesus is looking out and he says, do you know what hell is like? Hell is like a person being burned to death for eternity. He is using the word hell or gina or the valley of Hinnom to create a word picture in the first century civilization's mind that if you can imagine the smell and the sight and the sound of a human being being burned to death, that is what hell is going to be like. He's painting a strong word picture. Now, I've got a couple of scripture verses here, um, and by a couple I mean quite a lot, uh, to sort of explain the concept of hell. So if you want to jump on to the next slide, here are some of the things that Jesus said. Uh, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament, in case you're wondering. Uh, If you, in fact, took everyone, every other reference of hell and added them together, Jesus still spoke, spoke about hell more than everyone else combined. Just so we're clear, that the concept of hell that we follow comes directly from the words of Jesus. In Matthew eighteen eight uh, and twenty five and forty one, it says this: uh, hell is referred to as everlasting fire. In Matthew twenty five forty six, as everlasting punishment. In Jude one six, as everlasting chains. In Mark three twenty nine, as eternal damnation. In Hebrews six two, as eternal judgment. In Jude one seven, as eternal fire. And skip to the next slide. In Matthew 3.12 as unquenchable fire, in Mark 9.43, 44, 45, 46, and 48 as the fire that shall never be quenched, in Luke 3.17 as fire unquenchable, in 2 Peter 2.17 as the midst of darkness reserved forever, and finally in Jude 1.13 as the blackness of darkness forever. Hell is a place of unending, eternal torment. I don't want to give you... Uh, uh, a hippie rainbows and lollipops and sunshine view of hell. I want to give you the biblical understanding of hell, that it is a place of eternity for those who reject Christ. That if you reject Christ in this life, at the time of judgment, you will stand before God and you will be condemned for an eternity in hellfire. This is why for the Christian following Jesus' will and leading others to know him and leading others to spend eternity in heaven, we should have no greater joy than that. Because it means when we lead someone to Christ, they get to spend eternity in heaven and not eternity in hell. It, where's the amen? This is, This is the reality that I don't think is taught... Often in scriptures, because you can't fill a church by teaching this. You can't get butts in the pews by teaching this. And it needs to be taught because this is the the, the ultimate concept. If hell is real and real people are going there, it should light a fire under us if you excuse the pun to get people to heaven. Because when you understand the biblical reality of hell, there is nothing that a person can do that you would want them to go to hell for eternity. There's nothing that a person can do that makes me want them to spend eternity in hell. When you understand what hell is going to be like. Hell is a place of eternity. And here's what you need to know. Again, through the influence of literature and artwork, A lot of people think that Satan rules hell, and that's just simply not biblical. Satan does not rule hell. In fact, uh, the scripture is very clear in the book of Revelation, where it says that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So, who rules hell? I think I've said this before in different sermons, but it's really quite simple. Jesus does. Because Jesus rules everything. If Jesus is the ruler of all, that all has to include hell. And so what you've got, is, because of this literature and because of artwork, what you've got is a simple picture of maybe Satan sitting on a throne, he's red, he's got horns, he's got a, a tail coming out, he's holding a pitchfork, and he's prodding people and tormenting them for eternity. And that's sort of the, the, the modern understanding of what hell is going to be like. But the reality of scripture is that that's not the case, that I believe Jesus will be ruling hell and weeping for those that are there for eternity because of the choices that they made in life. Satan doesn't rule hell, Jesus does. So when we we look at this and we say that there's going to be the endless punishment of the wicked, that's literally what we're talking about, is that if you, in this life, reject Christ, that's your destination. But but to flip this and end this on a good note, because I, I really do want, to, want you to leave encouraged, uh, I... I need you to understand this. this is again from uh, Revelation 21. It was read to us earlier. But there's these simple words in Scripture, and this fills me with more joy than you can possibly imagine. There is no temple in heaven. Scripture will continue on to say, because God himself will be the light. So I want you to imagine this. That the Heaven is going to be a replica of Jerusalem. It's going to have massive walls. That was uh, read for us earlier. It's going to have gates in those walls. The foundations are going to have the name of the apostles. The gates are going to have the name of the children of Israel over them. And so there's going to be a massive city that we're going to exist in. And the the streets are going to be paved with gold. That is biblical. That is in Revelation. Uh, There is going to be a river flowing through the the, the city. And it says that the the waters of the the river will bring healing. In fact, there's also a tree uh, in that city as well. whose whose leaves are the nations of the world, and it will say that the river of life will bring healing to the nations. So when you look around at the world as it exists today, that is divided, that is in trouble, that is in peril, with nation against nation and brother against brother and everyone fighting, what it says is there's going to be a river of life that flows from the throne of God and that that river is going to bring healing to the nations. And instead of everyone being split and apart and torn apart, we're going to be together and living in harmony and unity. That's the picture of heaven. It sounds an awful lot like the book of Genesis, like the Garden of Eden, that has a river flowing through it, that has trees growing in it. But the most important thing is in the Garden of Eden, it says that God himself walked on earth in the garden in the cool of the day. In heaven, there will be no temple for God will be with us and he himself will be the light. You get to walk with God on a daily basis, whatever, whatever the day looks like in heaven. I know that's a bad ex- expression because there will be no day and no night because there won't be a sun and the moon because God himself will be the light. But for whatever it looks like for us, we will be eternally in the presence of God the way that God intended it to be. God created this world, and you can read this in Genesis 1 and 2. He created the world, uh, and he created Adam and Eve, and he designed us to have fellowship with him. The design of God, the plan of God at the very beginning was to be walking on earth with us. That was the plan. Sin broke that plan and everything went off the rails. And so if you were to read the first two chapters of the Bible, skip everything else and read the last two chapters of the Bible, you would get mirror images of what God is trying to do. He bookends the Bible with images of Him walking with His children. This is, this is what we should be excited about. That For you and I, eternity is going to look like forever being in the presence of God no longer separated from him through sin, always physically in the presence of God, that he's going to walk with us, that he is going to be with us. Uh, It actually quotes from the book of Jeremiah, and it says this, that God himself will be with his people, and he himself will be their God. We celebrate this at Christmas. Emmanuel, we say it all the time, means God with us. Reality of scripture is that the Emmanuel was a once occurrence for us, here that will be an eternal occurrence in heaven that we will forever get to spend eternity with god as we end our time together this morning that's what i, I would love for you just to reflect on this the reality of hell should light a fire underneath you for evangelism now There are some people who are really good at evangelism, and there are some people who are not so good talking to people. Believe it or believe it not, I'll throw myself under the bus. I'm terrible at evangelism. I am great at standing up here and preaching the reality of Scripture. I am terrible going up to a person one-on-one and talking about Jesus, just because I'm not not a good people person. Some of you are. Some of you are great people persons. I can see that by the way that you talk to each other when the, the meeting is supposed to start. You're still yapping. It's true. You need to nail down in your life what evangelism looks like to you. It's not always that one-on-one talking to each other. Sometimes evangelism is is honestly doing the things that God tells you to do uh, all the time so that when people look at you, they say, hey, what's different about that person? And then you simply say, I'm a Christian. Come to church. See what it's actually about. It's not heavy theological discussions though sometimes it is but it's it's not that it's building relationships with the people that god has put into your lives your friends your families your co-workers your school people if you're if you're doing school it's the the barista at starbucks that when i go in with my uniform they want to know what my uniform's about so i can tell them about the salvation army It's about a whole bunch of things. It's not just one thing. Evangelism isn't just one thing. It is preaching the gospel of God. It's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's taking the message of the good news out from this place, out there. Because everyone in here knows the message of God. Uh, People out there don't. Which means you and I should have a fire underneath us to talk to people about Jesus. Jesus. Because if heaven is real, and if hell is real, it means that real people are really going there. People that we know, people that we love. So let's get serious about evangelism. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're going to sing our closing benediction.